from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Today on Studio 360, we are talking about live theater. Every so often, a Broadway musical appears that's more than just a hit. It becomes a cultural phenomenon. Think of South Pacific. Or a chorus line. Or what's it called? Hamilton. I am not thrown away, ma. Shot. I am not thrown away, ma. Shot. And you am just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry. Well, that is what Lerner and Lowe's My Fair Lady was at the end of the 1950s. Alan J. Lerner would have turned 100 this year. And so the author of Brigadoon and Paint Your Wagon and Gigi and Camelot is being celebrated with the publication of an anthology of all his lyrics and a big New York revival of his mega hit, My Fair Lady. Like a lot of very talented artists, Lerner was a very complicated person. One of Studio 360's original producers, Jeff London, takes a look. I could have I think the My Fair Lady Broadway show album is yesterday's Hamilton. Joanne Young wrote and produced a PBS documentary on Alan J. Lerner and his longtime writing partner, Frederick Lowe. Everybody owned it, that LP. It's just that kind of show. My Fair Lady was Lerner and Lowe's adaptation of George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, about a professor of phonetics who teaches a cockney flower girl to speak proper English and then passes her off as royalty. The show was the apex of Lerner's career. It ran for six and a half years on Broadway, the longest run of any musical at that point. Lerner snagged two Tony Awards, the show went on to play in London and around the world, and it was made into an Academy Award-winning film. Why can't the English teach their children how to speak? This verbal class distinction by now should be antique. If you spoke as she does, sir, instead of the way you do, why, you might be selling flowers, too. Lerner's professional career stretched from 1942 until his death in 1986, when he was talking with Andrew Lloyd Webber about adapting The Phantom of the Opera. He had his hits and his flops, but there were quite a few highs, and the subjects Lerner chose to write about were varied, like Brigadoon, an original story about a Scottish village that appears every 100 years. Or Paint Your Wagon, about gold miners in the American West. Well, I'm a gold mine, I don't know. Well, I'm a hidden mine, certain all, and always I am on my way. Or Gigi, an Academy Award-winning film set in Belle Epoque, Paris. The night they invented champagne. 
It's plain as it can be. They They thought of you and me. King Arthur's Round Table in Camelot. 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 I know it sounds a bit bizarre. Even a musical about extrasensory perception. On a clear day, you can see forever. You can see forever and ever more. The New York-born, Harvard-educated learner was a painstaking craftsman, but he could be quite self-deprecating about his work, as he revealed in an evening at New York's 92nd Street Y in 1971. Although lyric writing is an art form, a popular art form, if you will, it's a minor one. Somewhere a little above photography and wood carving. But it has its disciplines, and it is an individual expression. Being a theatrical lyric writer, my own taste runs to the romantic. Fundamentally, I suppose I'm more interested in the dreams of man, which are eternal, than the temporary perversions of those dreams called reality. I have often walked down this street before. The pavement always stayed beneath my feet before All at once am I several stories high Knowing I'm on the street where you live Lerner was a perfectionist. Amy Ash co-edited the recently published Complete Lyrics of Alan J. Lerner. And that's something we really saw in the book that he would not rest, and he would toy with a phrase and turn it inside out and tweak it and turn it around again and turn it around again. That kind of perfectionism sometimes drove his collaborators crazy. But Lerner drove himself craziest of all. When he and Frederick Lowe, whose nickname was Fritz, were writing My Fair Lady, they visited Covent Garden in London and saw a group of cockneys sitting around a smudge pot fire. And I suddenly realized how much creature comforts meant to those people. But the great thing about the Cockneys, of course, is their cheerfulness in the face of all adversity. All I want is a room somewhere Far away from the cold night air With one enormous chair Wouldn't it be lovely? And this song, Wouldn't It Be Lovely, is a cheerful melody. And Fritz wrote it, consciously trying to make it cheerful. And what drove me mad about writing the lyric was that I wanted to write it without any mention of another person or someone's head on my knee and all of that. I just wanted it to be about creature comforts. But every time I came to the last eight bars, I couldn't find a climax. And I was hung up for six weeks on it. And finally, I just had to give up. Someone's head resting on my Takes good care of me, oh, wouldn't it be lovely? Lerner wrote the lyrics and the scripts for all his shows, which gave them a kind of unity of expression, says editor Amy Ash. You know, it was very important to him that he was a dramatist and not just a lyric writer, and that he was responsible for the telling of the story, whether the words were spoken or sung. And doing both jobs allowed him to find ways of compressing the dramatic action. Well, I think the lyric has many functions. Of course, it's to dramatize. It continues the story of the play. It heightens the dramatic scene. But it also shortens the play. 
because uh, you, you can accomplish more in four bars of music than you can with 10 pages of dialogue. But television producer Joanne Young says the creative process, especially going out of town for tryouts to work on a show, took its toll on Lerner. For a while, he was hooked on amphetamines, and one of Lerner's colleagues told Young, Alan was so distraught and nervous that he chewed his fingernails until they bled. And then he would put gloves on, and the blood would come through those white gloves. That story, to me, you know, told me a lot about Alan Lerner. I just felt bad for him. His life was not as pleasant as it should have been when you are a star on Broadway. I was born under a wandering star. I was born under a wandering star. Staying put can kill you. Standing still's a curse But to settle down can drive you mad But moving on is worse Lerner was something of a wanderer, certainly in his personal and professional relationships. He was in his 20s when he met the much older Fritz Lowe during World War II. Lerner was 4F because of a boxing accident that ruined the vision in his left eye. Joanne Young says there was almost a father-son relationship between the two men. There was this natural affinity between them, something about the personalities there was an immediate feeling that they could work together and should work together. And they did. But while the pair collaborated on many shows and films, their partnership was fairly volatile, which led to several breakups. So Lerner worked with other composers, among them Kurt Weill, Leonard Bernstein, Andre Previn, and Burton Lane. Lane told NPR in 1982, Alan was always going through difficult times with his collaborators. It was Fritz Lowe. They loved one another and then they hated one another. And then when they hated one another, I was called on. How could you believe me when I said I love you when you know I've been a liar all my life? Lerner's restlessness was also reflected in his personal life. He was married eight times. Producer Joanne Young. You know, I think that he had a lot of issues in his life, insecurities and you know, searching for happiness. I mean, nobody really has eight wives anymore or should have. And I think that he was a troubled person. And so isn't it amazing that he was able to create what he did? How to handle a woman There's a way, said the wise old man A way known by every woman since the whole rigmarole began Do I flatter her, I begged him answer Do I threaten or cajole or plead Do I brood or play the gay romancer Said he smiling, no indeed How to handle a woman Mark me well Simply 
Young also points out that Lerner and his partner Lowe, who was married only once but had a series of young girlfriends after he divorced, returned to certain themes in their writing. Both My Fair Lady and Gigi have forceful male characters falling for a younger woman. If you look at his life and the shows, it is that young woman that they want to mold into this perfection, you know, this goddess, whatever, and... Don't worry about the child or the woman. Don't think about her. Just mold her the way you want her to be. Gigi, you're not at all that funny, awkward little girl I knew. Oh, no, overnight there's been a breathless change in you. Which brings us back to My Fair Lady. Many critics have proclaimed it the perfect musical, even though it's missing one of the key elements of traditional musical theater, romance. The show is based on a drawing room play by Shaw that looks at class differences in Edwardian England. As a matter of fact, Alan J. Lerner told the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in the 1960s, the number of people who had tried to do Pygmalion reads like a roster of the theater. Rogers and Hammerstein had had it for a year and abandoned it. Then Cole Porter had it for a while and abandoned it. Frank Lester had it for a while. Moss Hart had it for a while. I can't tell you the number of people who had it and gave it up. Lerner and Lowe had abandoned it, too, until Lerner realized that some of the scenes in the drawing room could be set in the outside world. Covent Garden, Ascot, a pub in the East End of London. And invariably, music led to emotion, which led to at least the whiff of romance. One of the most famous and dramatically effective songs Lerner ever wrote comes towards the end of the show. I've grown accustomed to her face. It's what Lerner called a recognition scene, a theory of drama he read about in a book by playwright Maxwell Anderson. He said that in every great play, there was a moment near the end of the play where the hero or heroine recognized the nature of his problem or conflict and was either defeated by it or conquered it, in which case it would be a comedy. The song comes at the climax of My Fair Lady, when Eliza, the former flower girl Henry Higgins is tutored, gets fed up with his callous treatment of her and leaves. Harry Haddon Payton plays Higgins in the current revival. And he's trying to work out what he's feeling. I think that's the crux of this character. He doesn't understand his feelings, he doesn't understand other people's feelings. If we were talking about him in today's language, we might put him on the spectrum in some way, on the autistic spectrum because he's obsessed about languages and about his studies, but not so good with the emotional language. So for him, it's a journey of, of discovery, and that's what this does, and it moves him from anger to contemplation, and the feelings overcome him eventually. In the music, it's written that to her face is spoken right at the end. And for me, that's when he can't sing any longer. It's just He's defeated by it in a sort of ball of confusion. Here's Harry Haddon Payton with Ted Sperling at the piano performing I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face. Damn, 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 damn. I've grown accustomed to her face. She almost makes the day begin. 
I've grown accustomed to the tune She whistles night and noon Her smiles, her frowns, her ups Her downs are second nature to me now Like breathing out and breathing in I was serenely independent and content before we met Surely I can always be that way again And yet I've grown accustomed to her looks Accustomed to her voice Accustomed to her face Marry Freddy. What an infantile idea. What a heartless, wicked, brainless thing to do. But she'll regret it. She'll regret it. It's doomed before they even take the vow. I can see her now, Mrs. Freddy Eidsford Hill, in a wretched little flat above a store. I can see her now, not a penny in the till, and a bill collector beating at the door. She'll try to teach the things I taught her. And end up selling flowers instead Begging for her bread and water While her husband has his breakfast in bed In a year or so when she's prematurely grey And the blossom in her cheek has turned to chalk She'll come home and lo, he'll have upped and run away With a social climbing heiress from New York Poor Eliza, how simply frightful How humiliating how delightful. How poignant it will be on that inevitable night when she hammers on my door in tears and rags. Miserable and lonely, repentant and contrite. Will I let her in or hurl her to the wolves? Show her kindness or the treatment she deserves? Will I take her back or throw the baggage out? I'm a most forgiving man. The sort who never could ever would take a position and staunchly never budge just a most forgiving man but I will never take her back if she were crawling on her knees let her shiver, let her moan, let her promise to atone, I will slam the door and let the hellcat freeze I'm so used to hear her say Good morning every day Her joys, her woes, her highs Her lows are second nature to me now Like breathing out and breathing in I'm very grateful she's a woman And so easy to forget Rather like a habit one can always break And yet I've grown accustomed to the trace Of something in the air Accustomed to her face
Harry Haddon Payton and Ted Sperling chatted afterwards to break down how the song and Lerner's contribution in particular works. This is the first romantic song as romantic as Higgins gets. Basically saying, I'm in love without ever admitting it mm. or being able to say the word love. It's, it's a classic British understatement, right. isn't it? It's, I've grown accustomed. Accustomed is... And it's taken from the play, isn't right. it? Right. But it's such a great to have pick, sideways way of saying it. To have picked that phrase is, is beautiful. Yeah. And to her face, it's not even, you know, to her soul or yeah. her presence or her yeah. love. It's, I've gotten used to it. Mm. Haddon Payton says he approached the number the way he would approach a Shakespeare soliloquy and says Lerner's precise word choices provide a key to the character's inner life. What we get from the lyrics is longer vowel sounds in the slower stuff tune, noon, you know. I've grown accustomed to the tune she whistled night and noon. And then you get the quick, short, sharp words and the end of the lines are things like hill, till. I can see her now, Mrs. Freddy Eidford Hill, in a wretched little flat above a store. I can see her now, not a penny in the till. They're aggressive and they're angry and I, and I want to get that across, his passion. And the way his emotions come out in that kind of anger, and the language really helps. We talk about the centre of a character, and sometimes it's the groin or the heart. He is very much up in his head. And what happens to the lyrics is, surely I could always be that way again. So the way and again are kind of the assonance. They help create a little caesura before, and yet, which again, shorter vowels. Surely I can always be that way again And yet So it's very clever And I physicalise it quite a lot in the song By moving on those changes of thought Accustomed to her face And it's those kinds of little details in Alan J. Lerner's writing that may be why it still speaks to audiences today. Interesting, considering Lerner said he never pandered to popular tastes. If you start to worry about what the audience thinks as you write, I mean, that's... you're right on the road to madness. You write for yourself. You write for what interests you or what touches you or what pleases you and then when you, when you finish you just hope to God that some other people will like it too. That story was produced by Jeff London. Coming up, what a musical theater veteran loves about the new and different Hamilton. Thematically, a lot of the best hip-hop is about social change, and this is a show about a society being formed, so they, they really go very well together. Jack Bertel, among the great tried-and-tested experts on musical theater today. That's next on Studio 360. He's on the British side in Georgia. He's trying to keep the colonies alive. Studio 360. This episode, we are looking at live theater. And when it comes to musical theater, Jack Bertel is kind of a human encyclopedia. Back in the day, he was a theater critic. He's now artistic director of Encores, a series at Lincoln Center here in New York that resurrects old musicals. 
But that's just one of his jobs. He's also a prolific hands-on producer of major Broadway shows, including Hairspray and Kinky Boots. A couple of years ago, Jack Bertel published a great book called The Secret Life of the American Musical, How Broadway Shows Are Built. It really changed the way I watch theater, and I asked them in to talk about it. So let's go through this masterclass. Uh, the overture <laughs> is is was in the old days the instrumental beginning of the show. Then the opening number. Break down the important component parts of a great opening well, number. Michael Blakemore, the director, had this wonderful thing that he said once at a dinner party that I was at, which is the minute the curtain goes up, the audience is in trouble. And what he meant by that was that you don't really know where to look or what you're looking at. And, and of course, scenery helps tell you where, the, where we are. But an, a great opening number, I think, typically doesn't delve into the plot of the show quite yet, but sets a tone, uh, introduces you to what the world of the piece is, when the piece is happening. And, and it should do all of that work, you know, in a, an unexpected way that makes you want to get on the ride and, uh-huh. and, and find out where it's going to happen. There are no rules yet in the show. Right. But by the end of it, you should pretty much know what the territory of yes. the show is. Okay, I want to play one of your textbook opening numbers from Oklahoma in 1943. And, and while it's playing, explain what we're seeing on stage. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright We're outdoors, very, very far from Broadway. The corn is as high as an elephant's This is a cowboy who wanders on stage, whose love for the land and for his surroundings is completely unguarded. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful I got a beautiful feeling Everything's going my way Before Oklahoma, most shows started with a, a, a chorus of people on stage singing some form of, you know, welcome to the show or a pretty girl is like a melody or whatever. And Rodgers and Hammerstein, who had agreed to adapt this play that was set on a rural farm and didn't have any opportunity to bring a chorus of people on right at the beginning. And so they wrote this number for a single person to wander out on stage by himself. And nothing like that had ever been tried before. And I'm so happy to learn that and think of that because, of course, one thinks of Oklahoma and that song as so old-fashioned, so corny. And yet it was the height of modern minimalism, I guess, in 1943. It was. It really startled people. And I think it startled them with less rather than with more. And that in itself was startling because shows— Musical shows tend to be muscle-bound. You know, they want to do everything all the time. Yes. So the next key component is, as you say, the I Want song, which is the main character explicitly saying, here's what I'm after. Musicals are very uh, different than most other forms of storytelling in that they keep stopping and starting. They're songs and dances and costume changes and scenery changes. And if you don't have someone driving the story forward in a very specific way, it's hard to succeed. Um, And so one of the things that tends to work really well in a musical is a character stepping up and saying, this is what I want. It's hard to get. I'm going to get it. I'm going to die trying if I don't get it watch me, let's go. And musicalizing that moment is a, is a 
a challenge that we all call the I Want song. Gypsy has a great, very explicit I Want song called Some People. Set up what, what has happened, what, what we are seeing. Well, in the opening scene of Gypsy, it has a, it has a very uh, um, modest opening number, which is two little girls who are a kitty act in vaudeville uh, doing their number. After it's over, we realize that the, the, the main character of the story seems to be the mother of these two girls and that they have no talent. Um, but she's going to get them out and, and get them on stage. One in, way or another. One way or another. And, of course, the real ambition is not for them. It's for her. Some people can be content, play in bingo and pay in rent. That's peachy for some people, for some humdrum people to be. Ethel Merman. Ethel Merman, the Ethel Merman. But some people ain't me. I never forgave my parents for not taking me to this show. I had a dream, a wonderful dream, Papa. All about June and the Orpheum circuit. Give me a chance and I know I can work it. I had a dream, just as real as can be, Papa. Uh, the hugely successful, maybe transformative musical right now, of course, is Hamilton. And one of the reasons is that uh, when you look past its innovations and its newness, using hip-hop, racially counterfactual casting, it's really an old-fashioned musical. In some ways, it is. It has an opening number. It has an I Want song. It has a, a lot of sort of typical pieces of the machine in it. And its I Want song is... It's called My Shot. I'm not going to miss my shot. I know the action in the street is exciting, but Jesus, between all the bleeding and fighting, I've been reading and writing. We need to handle our financial situation. Are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? I'm past patiently waiting. I'm passionately smashing every expectation, every action to act the creation. I'm laughing in the face of casualties and sorrow. For the first time, I'm thinking past tomorrow. And I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not One of the great things about hip-hop is two great things. One is that just energetically, it really does drive you forward. Yeah. And the other is that thematically, a lot of the best hip-hop is about social change. And this is a show about a society being formed. So they, they really go very well together. A much better natural mate for musical theater than classic rock and roll, which tends to have lyrics that are repetitive or uh, very simple-minded or, uh, you know, uh, Jerry Lieber, who wrote a lot of the early rock songs, right. once said, most of my songs are content-free. <laughs> and I thought it was a great phrase. Yeah. Um, having read your book, I, I see that a, a great musical is like a, a machine or a, like a big old-fashioned novel. And, you know, you need the musical numbers to propel it. You need the subplots with lesser but interesting people. And then when something, one of those or more is totally out of whack, the whole thing uh, falls to pieces. Um, you write about uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum that was maybe fatally flawed, and they and they fixed it. Yeah, it was. It, that's a show that uh, was a disaster out of town. It wasn't. People didn't laugh at that show out of town, and it had an opening number called um, "Love Is in the Air." It's spreading. It's Throughout the whole vicinity, step out and 
you're in it with all the fun involved. Who can stay uninvolved? It was a charming song about love, and it drives you crazy, and, you know, you'll never... And and this is going to be a charming evening of charm. The show doesn't have any charm. The show has mayhem. You know, yeah. it has. it's a lowbrow knockabout comedy. So uh, Stephen Sondheim and George Abbott and Hal Prince uh, and probably the book writers as well, Larry Gelbart and Bert Shevelov, called Jerome Robbins down to wherever the show was trying out, Washington. I think it was at the National in Washington at the time. And he looked at it and said, well, you've got the wrong opening numbers. You've got to write a number about... Welcome, dear audience. You're going to see a lowbrow farce. And so uh, Stephen Sondheim went back and wrote Comedy Tonight, which is, you know, a seven or eight minute event. Frenzy and frolic, strictly symbolic, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. And at that one thing, it, it immediately transformed it everything because things that weren't funny two hours into the show when Love is in the Air was the opening number suddenly were funny. Huh. And that's really a kind of alchemy and, and and I think took on Robbins's part an understanding of what the importance is of setting up the expectations for the audience in the right way. Uh, you've worked uh, as a producer on lots and lots of musicals, including M. Butterfly and The Producers and Jelly's Last Jam. I, I, I'm fascinated by when you were wrong about something and, and were proven wrong. Uh, there, there's a number in Hairspray that uh, Motormouth Maybell sings toward the end with the, with the ensemble. It's a very – it's a 6-8 gospel, classic gospel. I know gospel. where I've been. Yes, I know where I've been. And it replaced a number called Step On Up, which was a much hotter number, you know, much jazzier number. And I really felt it was not right to stop this show in its tracks, which is basically a campy – comedy with a political edge with to a, it. Yeah, to have this whole civil to rights To have this aria. whole little, like, quite somber civil rights moment. I was yeah. 100% wrong. I mean, it wasn't that I was afraid of the politics of it, because the whole show is political. Right. But the composer and lyricist, Mark Shaman and, and Scott Whitman, and the director, Jack O'Brien, and the various book writers, really wanted to stop and, and, and just pause. And I thought, we'll never recover from this. When I saw it up on its feet, I thought, well, that was stupid. I mean, obviously, it was yeah. a great, great idea. That was Mary Bond Davis in your original Broadway production of Hairspray. A musical like that is in sharp contrast to Stephen Sondheim, who's a genius with his own brand of musicals, complicated, lyrically, musically, philosophically. But it strikes me, tell me if you agree or disagree with this, that in this century, in the first decade of this century, something happened that allowed musical comedies to be actually funny and huge hits again, and I'm thinking of Hairspray and Book of Mormon. And and I felt like, to the degree I went to musical theater, new musical theater in the previous 25 years, like, Meh. and And suddenly the, the, the atmosphere allowed those shows to happen. Um, I think that's true. I think we went through a real shock of the new about ourselves uh, around the time that Stephen Sondheim was writing Company and Follies, where we all woke up and, you know, the Vietnam War was uh, coming to an end. Uh, it actually ended on the night of the first out-of-town preview of A Little Night Music. Um, That's when, a fact you just happened to know? I was there. And Len oh. Carrey stopped the curtain call and announced uh -huh. that an accord had been reached. Uh -huh. uh, it was quite a moment. Um, and, and I think we uh, wandered around a little bit shell-shocked for a while as a nation uh, after that. Somehow, in the, in the last 
10 years or whatever, we've found new and different ways of making merry uh, in a serious, you know, it's a seriously good thing, I think. Yeah. But those new and different ways do involve a fair amount of cynicism, a fair amount of you know, a gimlet-eyed view of the world, so that you you would meaning never, they're actually funny, as I said. Well, they're actually funny, right? But you would never confuse hairspray with, uh, you know, a musical comedy from the fifties, right? It, uh, just they're different. They're right. really different, right? Uh, say a Book of Mormon, most of all, perhaps. No, it sort of had to d- almost die as a form to be reborn. In a sense, I guess, uh, or uh, you know, the cultural clock had to go around yes. quite a few times. Yes, yeah. So uh, I wanted to think of a song to play you out on. At the end of this interview, the obvious would be, uh, of course, Romana, Get Your Gun, uh, Ring Berlin's uh, There's No Business Like Show Business, but too obvious. So what should we play you out on? Well, um, you know, uh, Broadway Baby, which is from Follies, is a song that's about a slightly pathetic character who wants to be in show business. How about that? Self-deprecating to the end or at the end. Jack Fertel, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just a Broadway baby Walking off my tired feet Pounding 42nd Street To be in a show I talked with Jack Fertel in 2016. You can hear a longer version of our conversation on our website, studio360.org. Coming up next... It's very difficult to see that that play is the reality. How does a drama about blue-collar workers in the Rust Belt play in the Rust Belt? I really enjoy the play, but it made me... It it touched a lot. Sweat, for which Lynn Nottage won the Pulitzer Prize, goes on the road. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. On this episode, we are drawing the curtain back on stories about how the American theater works. And for our final act, a story about a non-musical play, Sweat. When I started at the plant, it felt like I was invited into an exclusive club. Not many of us folks worked there. Not us. So when I put on my jacket, I knew I'd accomplished something. It's the play by Lynn Nottage that won the Pulitzer Prize for drama last year. I was sick. And when I got my union card, you couldn't tell me anything. Sometimes when I was shopping, I would let it slip out of my wallet onto the counter just so folks could see it. Here's what Lynn Nottage had to say about the project on a video on the Public Theater website. For me, began with a friend of mine who was a, a single mom of two who wrote me an email explaining um, her situation. She found herself after working most of her life and being solidly middle class without a job and for six months without any real resources and it really broke my heart. So I really set about to figure out how um, poverty and economic stagnation was really shifting the American narrative. And this was in 2011. And I began doing research and we came across a city um, called Reading, Pennsylvania. This could be like a real rich city, but it's not. It's a poor city. The city's poor, the streets are messed up, everything is messed up. There's no money. Everybody's getting laid off, everybody's... So what does that make you feel about your own future? 
The play Wild People in New York, first off-Broadway at the Public Theater, then on-Broadway. But not many in those Manhattan theaters had much recent personal experience with factory work or union struggles. Unlike the audiences for the public's 18-stop tour of the play this fall, as part of what they call their National Mobile Unit, the play was performed for people in the Rust Belt, in places like Erie, Pennsylvania, and Eaton Rapids, Michigan, and at a library in St. Cloud, Minnesota. My name is Brandon Woodard, and I'm here because they told me about this wonderful production. I wanted to to see it for myself. Um, I I see so many stories um, in my own family that are replicated in various characters there. And so I'm, I'm just torn between the dynamics of it all. The play is about a group of friends who work in a factory in Reading, Pennsylvania, who are reeling from layoffs and racial tension. You work at the plant, right? Along with everyone else who comes in here, dog. You know, right? It's okay. It's a job. Steady. Whatever. They pay good? I pay my bill. What's with all the questions? I'm just asking because I saw a posting down at the center spine. What the fuck is that? The Latino Community now, Center. What do you mean you saw a posting? A po- post? A-, a job posting. Olsteads. Steel tubing. That's your place, right? Well, it's, it's not my place. It's where I work. Yeah, okay, well... They're looking to hire folks, and I know it's got to pay better than what here. What are you talking about? Olstez isn't hiring. <clears throat> that ain't what I heard. They're just looking to train packers, shippers. Hmm. I got the info. Yeah. Let me see that. Well, all I can read is Olstead's. The rest is gibberish. So. No, it's Spanish. <laughs> see there? It gives times when you can go down to the plant to fill out an application for training. Nah, this is a joke. No, no, I don't think so. First off, you gotta be in the union. Not according to the fly. Yeah, well, you got it wrong. My name is Marielena Gutierrez, and I came to see this play. In my family, there's been things that are happen like that. Like my brothers, they were like around 17 years old when they start working in a field, picking fruit and all that. But a group got in fight with them because they were doing their work faster. It's very difficult to see that that play is the reality. There is a lot of jobs that they are paying less money, and people from, like, another countries, they are taking those jobs because there is nothing else for us. I really enjoy the play, but it made me, it, it touched a lot. The very first time that I re- went to Reading, Pennsylvania was in, I, I believe, December of 2011. And in that moment, um, at least in, in Reading and, and, and many places like that, a lot of factories were shutting down and steel workers and, and textile workers were finding themselves locked out, which is very different than previous generations where, you know, if you had labor issues, you were able to strike and, and sit down at the bargaining table and use collective bargaining to really affect change. But 
what was happening in Reading in a lot of places is that factories were preempting um, strikes and locking um, workers out. And so that's very much the, the environment that I entered Reading in. Management is saying that it's too expensive to operate here. Why don't they take a pay cut if they want to save their precious plants? Yeah. Exactly. Because they won't. And you know their solution. You don't meet them halfway, they'll just pick up and run. That way they won't even have to see your bodies as they flee. That's bullshit. I'm telling you what's going on right now. I don't want this fucking job. Cynthia expressed an insight into her own situation that really struck me. My name is Mike Kraus, and right now I'm in St. Cloud, Minnesota, for production of Sweat. She is a, a black woman on the line being promoted to a management position. She suddenly realized that perhaps the only reason that happened was so she could be made to be the face as the workers were being shut out. Um, she's making the best of a really bad situation. My name is Carlo Alban. I play the role of Oscar. I'm the one original cast member from the play. I originated the role in Oregon in 2015. This is the most rewarding theater experience I've ever had. Um, I did the play in New York, and the night after we closed it to public, we did a performance in Reading, Pennsylvania for the Reading community, which is where the play is set. And we really didn't know what we were going to encounter uh, there. Uh, because we were, you know, putting these people's lives on stage, and it just, it was, it, it, it was just a really powerful performance um, because we were performing for the community that that this play was written for and about. Um, and after the performance, everybody kind of started testifying. There was a talk back, and people just started talking about their lives, and they really, really opened up. And we've encountered something very similar going into these communities. My name is Chaz Dem. Uh, I'm from uh, northern Minnesota, mining country. It's called the Iron Range. Uh, my grandfather was killed in underground mining, my mother's family. They had 11 kids. There were no supplements, there were no safety nets at that time. I walked out of high school at, uh, and at 19 I started with a mine. But I realized one thing, I wanted to go to college. I look back and that's a great history I came from, but it's a tough life and uh, it might pay great dividends when things are going right, but they're not always going right. What I really feel is, is, is the American story. It tells the story of um, Reading, Pennsylvania, but it could be any place. It could be any post-industrial city across the landscape. My real, real hope is that after the audience sees the play, that they want to sit down and talk to someone who they've never had a conversation with before. I hope that they will ask really tough conversations, not just of themselves, but of, um, of the legislators and the people who are in power. You know, I also hope that they will understand the power of, of art. What do you think? Well, why are you asking me? I don't know. You're young. I, I mean... There are a lot of things you can do, but maybe it's time to move on. This place ain't what it used to be. And go where? Anywhere. Sometimes I think that we forget that we're meant to pick up and go when the well runs dry. And now these last voices you'll hear are from audience members in St. Cloud speaking directly to the cast in a Q&A session after the recent performance there. One of the things that I was thinking throughout is the fact that we are watching consequences of uh, the social structures that we have, but we fail to see what is going on underneath. Why are we seeing a lot of struggle? What is going on? 
we, th we think about poverty, we, th we think about difference, but we fail to see the root cause of those kinds of inequalities. And we fail to see that these really are structural issues. You are so believable. You just have drawn me in and all of us in, in such a profound way. Your talent is incredible. How you have brought it together as a group, living and traveling together for all these weeks. My heart is just erupting with gratitude for the gifts that each of you have brought to this and do over and over again. And um, there really are no words to express the depth of my admiration for your work. Thank you. Studio 360 Sandra Lopez Monsalve produced that story. Invaluable production assistance on the ground in Minnesota was provided by Allison Herrera. And that's it for this episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. The show this week was mixed by... Tommy Bazarian. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. He's trying to work out what he's feeling. I think that's the crux of this character. He doesn't understand his feelings. He doesn't understand other people's feelings. Thanks for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, a little something about statues of male figures. The interesting thing about uh, penises in Greek art is not that some of them are small, but that they are all on the small side. The not modern way that size did matter to the ancient Greeks. Next time on Studio 360.